Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eben, and I'll be your host today, joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich. Today, we're jumping back into part two of our very special partnership with ElixirConf Japan, the Elixir Wizards Dojo. For this first collaboration, we are focusing on nerves. And in today's episode, you'll hear a conversation with Connor Rigby from the core team and Todd Rezadek, who you know, as a special host on the show and frequent contributor to the Elixir community. Hope you enjoy this part two of the Elixir Wizards Dojo. So glad to have you both on. Connor, this is not your first time on the show because you've been on one of the conference episodes. Isn't that right? I think I've been on the show a handful of times now. I can't remember. It might be two or three now. I know I was on one of the conference ones. Lone Star, right? Yeah, and I think I've been on like as an actual guest of the show once or twice as well. I can't remember. We'll need to have you on again soon. The show is like it's just ongoing. It's going on forever. Like this this podcast will just go on forever because the it's great. As long as the Elixir community continues to grow and explode the way it has been, we'll be here. And Todd is a regular. Yes, sir. Todd is even got his own wizard now. He's got his own wizard. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that. I showed that to my daughter. And said, hey, what do you think this is? And she said, oh, that's you and Taco. <laughs> because it's got my cat on it. I should explain. It's, <laughs> it's got my cat Taco on it. Well, we're really glad to have you on. And we wanted to just kind of check in, see how life has been going. I've got a terrible pun here that I've been wondering if it's like <laughs> just that bad. But the question is, has Elixir been your quarantini? Oh, that is horrible. I don't that, drink. That is pretty awful. So... <laughs> I don't know, right. man. I don't even drink. It's so bad. Yeah, I also don't drink. So, oh my gosh, I love when a pun completely falls flat. That's, it falls flat. That's good. Yeah. What about uh? I've got <laughs> I've got some good. I've got some bad news. What happened okay. to me recently is I've got the sit stand desk, uh-huh. and it was ambitious because uh-huh. it was always in sit mode before, and I was like, I'll stand, but yeah. then I never did. And then one day I was leaning back on my office chair and I broke the weld on my office chair. So I took that as sort of an indictment on my body. And so now I asked my brother, like, what chair should I buy to replace it? And he said, why don't you just stand at your desk? That's what most people do now. And so I've been standing at my desk. You know, Todd, I will stand in solidarity with you. All right. So (laughs) the trick to standing at your standing desk is just to not have a chair in the room and you pretty much just have to stand. So that's how my quarantine's been going. I need to figure out a standing desk situation. Mine is statically in sit position. And I must admit that the weld on my chair is also broken. And it makes a, a loud creaking noise if I sit in it just right. So maybe uh, maybe that is a sign. It's time for me to get a standing desk as well. Hey, maybe yeah. it'll make an appearance on the show today. <laughs> Either get a standing well, desk or, or get a treadmill. And not, not a treadmill desk, but like a treadmill so you can lose weight so you don't break your chair like I did. But I think, <laughs> I think for me, it's easier to spend the money on the standing desk than it is to get into shape. So Spending money is always the easiest way to uh, solve problems. Yes, sir. So Eric's got a question here that I just I don't really understand. So <laughs> I'm going to let him ask it. Yeah. So we announced the episode on Twitter and then Todd had a very specific question that he wanted to make sure that we asked. So what is your favorite subgenre of metal and why is it whatever Rhapsody of Fire is? This is a great question, Eric. <laughs> to all of our Swedish, Norwegian, 
Danish German listeners, you already know the answer to this question because you are you are metalheads by birth. But Rhapsody of Fire is a, is a power metal band, which is actually one of my favorite subgenres. So whoever wrote that was exactly on point. So that was you. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I love power metal. I don't know if you do, Connor, but one easy way to tell power metal is it's it's fantasy based. Yes. So if the, yeah. if the cover art looks like a Dungeons and Dragons book, or they're singing about knights or flames or swords in any way, there's a really good chance that's power metal. So the OG example would be Dio. If you've ever heard any Dio albums, no? Okay. Never really would have considered Dio power metal, but now that you make the connection, I agree, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's early. It's gotten, it's like moved into the extreme metal and black metal genres a little bit now, but I think Dio is like the OG of fantasy, of the fantasy genre. So check out uh, Dragon Force if you like power metal. That was going to be my suggestion is Dragon Force. If you ever played Guitar Hero 3, you know, the hardest (laughs) song on that one, it was probably my intro to power metal. Okay, this is something I've actually heard of. So Connor, what's your favorite subgenre? Subgenre of metal. Oh man, I don't know. I don't listen to much power metal, say, as much maybe Todd does, but I do listen to a lot of like punk metal and post-hardcore stuff. So That's good. I'm That's sorry, good I just have no idea what any of this means. Oh, man. Uh, maybe you could just define metal for people like me who just, you know, only Let's listen to Let's turn this into a metal podcast. Things with violence. Can, can you tell me what like metal is? Connor, can I take this and then you yeah, can fill in the it. gaps? All right. Yeah. So I think metal was founded with Black Sabbath. I think 1970 is okay. kind of considered the genesis, just like in uh, Unix timestamps. Uh, <laughs> 1970 Black was Sabbath's the beginning of time. It it's also yeah. marks the beginning of time, the epoch for metal. So, and that was like Black Sabbath. And then there was that first wave, which was like Sabbath and Deep Purple, I think is considered like a first wave metal band. Then you get into Nawabam which is the new wave of British heavy metal. And that's when it got really big. So that's Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, that sort okay. of. I've heard those. of these too. Yeah, okay. So that's the new wave of British heavy metal. But then it just splintered off. So most of the really good genres and subgenres come out of Northern Europe for some reason. So so wait, you said heavy metal. And then what was the other one that you mentioned? Oh, Nawabam. Yeah. So like what makes them different? Like I, I kind of know like, Black Sabbath. So well, it's it's like the second wave. So it just came later. It came like in I think seventy nine or eighty was Iron Maiden's first album. Your attention to detail is amazing. Oh, I'm really into this stuff. If anybody else (laughs) is really into this, Sam Dunn is a documentary filmmaker who makes a lot of documentaries about metal. So okay, and Ryan Holiday talks a lot about Iron Maiden, so I've listened to them a little bit as well. Well, so are the subgenres divided qualitatively or chronologically? Is that what you? A little bit of both, I think. Okay. But mostly, yeah, mostly it is splintered into qualitatively. So you've got like extreme metal, black metal, Norwegian black metal, power metal, Viking metal is a weird yeah, there's one. There's a lot of different versions of European metal as well. Like We have a question from the chat about, so this is a Dutch composer, I think is the, so it's Arjen Lucasen, the Arian project. Have either of you to listen to? So I've listened to that before. He writes like an opera, essentially, and then gets like other heavy metal people to join it. And for like that album or whatever, it's a very interesting take. That is an interesting take. Metallica has done a couple albums with the San Francisco Symphony, which is 
an amazing work of art, in my opinion. I, I'm not really like that into Metallica anymore, but for some reason, when you introduce a symphony to a metal band, it just creates kind of like this weird juxtaposition almost. Oh, I'm going to listen to this. S&M. Yes. Metallica and the San Francisco Symphony. Yeah, we're linking hey, to that. Yeah. I'm listening to that. That's exciting. We can move on from the metal. Yeah. That might be a good segment. We should get back to... Uh, oh, I thought this was just a metal podcast. Uh, elixir stuff? <laughs> right, right. We're the elixir wizards, right? <laughs> so we talked a lot on the last segment about like applications and different things that you could potentially use nerves for, which if you guys... Actually, I kind of want to hear from Todd on this one just because you've had some pretty novel ones. And, and recently, I really like the one that you posted on Twitter within the last, was it a few days or weeks? Yeah, I think just within the last week. Can, can you talk about it what it is, what it does, and where I can get one? Sure. I've got it on my desk right now because I'm rewiring the basement. So I took it down. I call it Bolt. It's a network monitor. So if you're watching this, that's what it looks like. It pings. It's a little Raspberry Pi Zero running nerves, and it uses F-Ping, which I use the FW up to add to my nerves base. So it uses F-Ping to ping Google's DNS server every 90 seconds, and it checks for the just the speed, the internet connection speed, as well as like packet loss. It will monitor the performance of the network, and so if the network is degraded, it will. It has a green, yellow, and red light on it on his head. And so it'll kind of show you where the network status is. And then if he goes into red, then he shuts down. So there's a relay in there. So my modem slash router is plugged into it and it will shut down the router for 15 seconds and turn it back on. If we've gone into, is there something like this on the market? No, literally you made something totally new. I don't think so. I've never heard of it. Somebody said that there was a feature built into their router where it would restart. Oh, I, I didn't talk about that feature. So I added a feature too. So it, it restarts at 4 a.m. every day anyway. So it'll every 24 hours, it cycles the power because you have to do that with your router after a while. So somebody told me their router had that built in, but I, I haven't heard of anything like this. And my router has uh, some like custom Linux firmware thing on it, like DWRT or something like that. And it has just like full-blown cron on it. So you can just throw a script on there. And I did that for a while. Just every night I made it reboot itself because that's easier than trying to ask charter why my internet goes out all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that seems to be like a well-recognized problem. So I guess this adds the quality. Plus then I can get cool graphs out of it and chart my quality and try to figure out what times of day I have the worst internet. Yeah. I have ubiquity stuff and you could set it up. So every hour it, it did a speed test, but I'm pretty sure just like all of a sudden one month I was using like a terabyte of data and then I turned off the speed test and it went back to normal. So like, just make sure your speed test isn't doing it. Yeah. Yeah. This copious. is just, this is just a ping. This is just F ping. So yeah. yeah, we're not, we're not going to go that crazy with it. You should make it test the internet by downloading some torrent, download the entire Wikipedia. Yeah. Just dump every, always, every hour. Yeah. Keep an Arch Linux ISO up to date. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Connor? You have any interesting projects that you've worked on recently that you could tell us about that would sort of illustrate the power of nerves? Uh, recently, I haven't been doing a ton of real exciting stuff with nerves. Frank and I have been working on getting Flutter, which is like a 2D graphics library 
up and running. And so we've been, you know, as something you could use instead of a kiosk, like the full web browser engine. So that's the screen that it'll go on, or I mean, it'll work on any screen if you're watching. And it's kind of like an interesting way to build user interfaces that's maybe a little bit more mature than scenic and a little bit less heavy handed than a full web browser instance on your on your device. So we're still working on getting that up and running, but I think that's going to be a really useful thing for people. Is this the like Google's Flutter? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with Dart, and I don't actually know a whole lot about Flutter other than you write Dart to make it work. Yeah, and I'm still amazed that Dart is still a thing. Maybe let's jump into that a little bit. We're talking about GUIs, and I mean, first of all, if you don't know what Flutter and Dart are, do you want to give a quick introduction to that? I still don't really know what flutter and dart are i know well, i'm i've just we, been working we use, them, on... we use them at simple bet so maybe i know a little bit about yeah, it go for it then i mean it's basically what you explained it's a framework so flutter is the framework and dart is the language and darts a it looks just like modern javascript to me essentially but it, it will compile into essentially just like think of it like react native so you write it in javascript and then it compiles into native apps and web apps the kind of consensus that I've got from the people that are using it is it's React Native, but it doesn't suck. I've never used React Native, so I don't know if it sucks or not, but I've heard that from more than two or three people, so I'm going to repeat it. Well, Smart Logic, we love React Native, and if you have a React Native project we could help you with, please come and talk to us <laughs> and we will help you with your React Native projects. Do you have any maybe tips on like best practices developing I'm going to move on from flutter and everything. Cause like nobody in our audience cares. Let's be real. Uh, <laughs> but, but do you have any best practices for developing apps like GUI apps? I like using Phoenix. I know there's a lot of people that prefer to use scenic and program like Phoenix on nerves, like Phoenix as a poncho app. What's a poncho app. Oh, poncho app. It's like an umbrella app, but better, but a little, a little less dictatorial. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, Maybe like a mono repo, I guess, where basically your firmware lives alongside of your web application. They can be totally separate apps, but that's what I've normally used if I need a UI. So I'll build a Phoenix app and then the data store is usually where I need to get things from is usually agnostic from NERVS anyway. So usually NERVS uploads sensor data to the cloud and then web app reads to and from the cloud. Yeah, that's how I try to do it as well. Like having a native UI on a device itself is like kind of a neat party trick, but it doesn't seem as useful to me in 2020 where you know, like no one wants to tinker around with a thing. They just want to control it from their web browser. So, you know, connect it to the cloud and control it via a web browser and, you know, make everyone happy. Yeah. I should say like if you look at the Drizzle 2000, I do have some actual toggle switches on there. And so I, I do like to have physical switches if there's something that's that I need to be able to access from the device. But as far as having like a really complicated GUI or something, I don't know, my brain doesn't work that way. Well, what is the Drizzle 2000, Todd? Oh, no. It's the future of lawn sprinklers, Justice. That's why it's 2000. Um, <laughs> it, it just started out as like sort of a challenge to myself. So I needed to get a new sprinkler controller system that could handle more more zones. And when you say needed? Oh, well, I needed to put grass in my backyard and I needed to water it. And so... So this is the thing that Justin was saying where engineers will buy something and then spend twice as much to do it themselves. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I would say I spent a lot less money, but if you were to like calculate 
the number of hours that I spent working on it, I'd probably break even at around, I don't know, 15 cents an hour versus buying something off the shelf. But it was as much a learning experience for me to prove to myself, is this something that I am smart enough to do? And then is this something that Nerves is good for? You didn't happen to install your own sort of sprinkler hardware, did you? Yeah. Why? Like what do you mean? in the ground? Like Oh, in the ground? Yeah. That stuff's really easy. It is easy? Okay. Sorry. I'm thinking about doing this. So this is just a purely selfish question. <laughs> okay. Uh, get, we'll you, get, yourself, get yourself one of those uh, ditch cutters. It's called a ditch witch, I think. But it's a gas powered. Like like, yeah, like a trencher. It looks like a chainsaw that Don't goes into the like ground. Three hundred dollars a day? No, no, no. I think it is like eighty dollars. Oh man, I'm going to get a trencher and tear my yard up. So you built the sprinkler, like the zone coordination hardware, right? Like that's more like, and timing and everything, right? Right. And now other people are using this. Allegedly, we had one question slash comment that said that they were a user of the Drizzle 2000. So there's at least two users out there. Okay. Yes, there was a guy, I think, in Michigan. I don't remember his name now, but he asked me a few details of it and sent me a picture that he was actually running. So that's good. And I know John Karstens is currently working on his. So I should say that Drizzle has now been moved to a Drizzle org, and there's a gentleman by the name of Elias who's co-maintaining it with me and John Karstens from the Nerves core team. Mm-hmm. So trying to do upgrades, like give it a touchscreen and stuff like that. So, so we didn't really do proper inter- introductions. Connor, you are one of the uh, major contributors on the Nerves core team. And I would, I do want to ask a little bit about like your sort of section of the code. And Todd, I think is one of the biggest like evangelizers for Nerves because you come to all the conferences with like Drizzle 2000 and like your projects. Todd has the most complete hobby projects I've ever seen to the point of completion to where it's almost like MVP. It is MVP. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like you should definitely like I can introduce you to some people at like venture capital firms that do hardware and like you could probably take that network monitor and sell that. (laughs) I'd love I'd love to. Let's start the bidding at five million. Straight shooter. Very nice. <laughs> oh, that's great. But yeah, no. So Connor, maybe you could dive into that a little bit. Like what part of nerves are you responsible for? And maybe dive into it a little bit so that people get an idea of the different internals of the nerves system. Uh, in terms of responsibility, I don't know that we've ever like divvied it up, but I do do a lot of the new networking library called VintageNet. I do do a lot of work on that. I've been working on adding Wi-Fi mesh networking support to that for a few weeks now. That's going to be a really fun project. But yeah, I guess if, if you were to divide it out, I would probably have, like if you were to look at my commit graph on GitHub, most of my commits would probably be to the networking libraries. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a question specifically about VintageNet, which was how do you connect other devices using Node Connect and VintageNet like after device boot? I think there's actually an example of that in the Nerves Pack repository. Once you're connected to the internet, it's just the same way as you would do any other node.connect you know you've got a cookie you've got a network and as long as you can access the other nodes on the network via their short names or if you have configured long names it's just node.connect and it automatically works you just plop it in your code wherever i think there are some tools to automate this as well i haven't tried them out in quite a while but i mean the cool thing about nerves is after it's booted it's just a regular elixir app so you can anything you can do in regular elixir you can do in nerves it's maybe the opposite of Phoenix where they have a lot of handholding and, and a lot of 
automatically doing things behind the scenes for you with nerves it's just the bare minimum viable to get you up and running on elixir so once you're there use all the standard elixir tooling i'm just reading some of these questions here and one that occurs to me is maybe interesting is uh about kiosk terminals because i'm not exactly sure first of all I'm, i don't know what a kiosk terminal even is so maybe you could define that for us and how would you go about internationalizing one of these i i can explain what i know about it i don't know how much of kiosk you've gotten involved with connor i think this was a project that came out of the tote it was something that was born of a need that they had in their warehouse a kiosk the way i think about it is it's essentially just running a web app like it just sets up your raspberry pi to boot into a web app without seeing all the raspberry pi garbage at the beginning and launching into full screen chromium you know etc so which is stuff you can do but there's a lot of steps to it and a lot of little config files to get into so internationalizing it would be the same as internationalizing a website because that's what it is. It's just a website. Right. So the name kiosk came from Chromium has a kiosk mode hmm. where you can boot it in kiosk mode. And basically it just makes it full screen and captures the entire screen. So and hides the URL bar and whatnot. So, I mean, like it's kind of almost a precursor to say like Electron maybe which Electron is more or less just Chromium and kiosk mode with some magic behind the scenes to hook it up to OS events. So yeah, like Todd said, any way that you can internationalize a web app, you can do it that way. I know Elixir, we have GetText, which is what Phoenix uses. So that Mm. would be my suggestion to anyone undertaking this. It almost seems like we haven't made it too easy. It'll never be too easy. But I mean, just bouncing off that conversation we had earlier about being able to just put everything in a Poncho app. And then if you're running something like a kiosk, I mean, it's just all in one place. It's all the same technologies you use every day. I don't know how much like simpler it could be, which is actually a good question. Like we kind of ended the last segment on this question, but I'm curious about like, where is the future going of hardware development specifically with nerves? And like, what do you see as like the ideal state, you know, maybe the unattainable ideal state, the utopian nerves project. For me, when I'm building nerves features, it's basically stuff that I need to make me forget that I'm on nerves. If there's something I can do to make it not have to worry about random little hardware things, then I'm going to do that. So in VintageNet, Frank's been working on adding power management to the networking library. So if you have like an LTE modem, one of the things in the spec sheets is like, if the module just goes out to lunch, which it does, just turn it off and back on again. So rather than having to do that in your code, we're adding the support to VintageNet so it can just automatically do that for you. So. For me, I just don't want to have to worry about the minutia of working with random little bits of hardware. So get the bare minimum viable to get to Elixir and then do everything in Elixir. Yeah. If there is a very complicated program that you're running, trying to get that to work in C, if you're a C programmer, forget I said this, but it's very hard to do multiple threads or use all the cores on the machine and keep track of that on C and manage all the memory and everything else. Like with Drizzle 2000, Elixir is a really good fit because it's managing state for every zone in there. It's managing its schedule. It's managing the weather forecast and sensor data all simultaneously, and they're kind of interacting. So to me, that's a good use case for using Nerves and Erlang. As far as the future goes, I've talked to Matt Ludwigs from SmartRent about a project, and we were going to do a... Well, we weren't going to do a training. We submitted to do a training at NervesConf this year. But obviously, the schedule fell apart on that one. But our goal would be to have like one touchscreen device, like a Google Home 
what's the Google thing called with the touchscreen? It was like a Google Home. It's Google Max or it's something. Home. Yeah. So like that, that's yeah, built in there. You have in your house if you. <laughs> I've decided I've got a Google Home because I use Gmail and I decided that I would rather Google have 100% of my data than to Google have 75% and Amazon have another 75%. Mm. Then I only have send to send it all to Google. Then, you know, then I, I just have to worry about my allegiances to Google. See, that's if how have, I try to treat Apple. I'm like, Apple can have everything and nobody else can have anything. You're probably smart, except for Siri is dumb. Yeah, no, Siri's dumb, which she's dumb because they don't abuse your data to make her smart. Yeah, that's probably why Alexa <laughs> works so well. All right. So, yeah. So the goal would be my goal in like the all the hard work that John and Connor are doing on networking, especially this mesh networking. So my goal would be to like, you would build a network device like the Bolt, for instance, the network monitor. And it would, as soon as you plug it in, basically, it knows that it's on the network. The hub knows that it's, there's a new nerves device on the network. And then you would start getting essentially what is like telemetry from it. Hmm. So you would have like one hub where you can see all your devices. So that I think all realistic. it does because of all the hard work that everybody else is putting in on this mesh networking, especially so, yeah, it was going to be like Justin was saying, conference-driven development. That was going to be like, a, oh, God, if they pick us to do this training at ElixirConf, we're going to have six months to actually make this thing live. Yeah. I used to do conference-driven development, and then I just thought, you know, I'll, I'll just be the MC instead. It takes way less prep. <laughs> Speaking of, well, quick plug for ElixirConf. It is still happening this year digitally, and we're working out right now how we're going to be involved. So, if you're watching right now, please get a ticket to online ElixirConf. I think the CFP ends on Saturday, so we'll edit this part out of the recorded episode. But yeah, ElixirConf is ground zero for the community. And if we'd love for everybody to be there, it's online now. It's really much more accessible. And shout out to uh, Sophie. I know she's doing a training this year. Hmm. So shout out. If you've got the time and the money and the interest, check out Sophie's training at ElixirConf. And I think... There is a ton of financial aid available this year as well. So I've got a question here about, let's do the easy one first, case studies that compare nerves to other IoT solutions and where to find them. And you know, if you know the results, top of mind. I don't know of any comparisons because I don't personally know of any solutions that are as comprehensive as nerves, like not to humble brag, not to humble brag, but... I'm just unaware of anything that is even remotely competitive. There are other smaller, like, I can't think of the names of any of them, but I know there's a couple of them that kind of try to hit this mark, but it's just not quite there in terms of the amount of conceptual overhead and the amount of production readiness you get out of the box. Like BuildRoot is the tool that Nerves is kind of based upon, and you could spin your own from there, but you still have to build all the tooling that Nerves has already made and it's made, it's proven, and it's already out there. And, you know, your solution is just, we've all rolled our own solution for stuff that there's existing examples of, and it never turns out as well as if you had just bit the bullet and got the original thing. But there have been some case studies. I participated in a case study where Erlang Solutions went into FarmBots, my previous company's work with Nerves, and I don't remember where that ended up. I'm sure it's on their blog somewhere. Oh, you were at FarmBot. I was at FarmBot. Yeah, I was the nerves guy at FarmBot. How much time 
and money would it take me to just get like that spun up on my own? A farm bot? You can buy one for, I don't remember what they cost, but I made it really easy for you. You just give them money and they'd ship you a robot and you type in your Wi-Fi password and then it grows things for you. But isn't it, it's, it's really expensive if you buy it complete. I don't know. Define really expensive. It's in the thousands order of magnitude. The new yeah. one that I think it's in production, I left before it was officially for sale, but the new version called the FarmBot Express, I think is on the order of like $1,100 or something to that effect. So it looks like they have Genesis. Yeah, Genesis, Genesis is XL the original model and, and that's the all the bells and whistles. And I think that one comes like, I can't remember what the prices of it comes to at the end, but I want to guess two grand if, if I had to guess maybe three. The big one that does 54 square meters was five and a half grand. Yeah, the XL model is is absolutely huge. Like if, if you have to question if you need the XL model, you almost certainly do not need the XL module. <laughs> it is ginormous. Three by six meters. Yeah, most people don't have space for that. We had room for exactly one of them and we had to kind of shuffle around a lot of we basically took up the entire parking lot at the office to build the XL <laughs> version. It was it's absolutely huge. So the FarmBot Express Max is like two thousand dollars less, so that's thirty two hundred. Then there's a XL, yeah, there's a two thousand, and then the Express is fifteen hundred. I'm buying one of these. Justin Schneck has one. I'm definitely. I got to. This is so cool. I just think it's the best thing ever. Is it just the watering? What else does it do outside of water the plants? Okay, so the Genesis one has like this really, really cool tool system where there's a magnetic tool head and it can go and, and pick up any tool. So I know there are a lot of like user created tools because the shape is pretty simple and you can print it on a 3D printer. There's a soil sensor, there's a vacuum pump on there so it can pick up and place seeds. And then there's the watering nozzle with a few various attachments on it to use different spray patterns. If I remember, I thought the coolest feature was the weeding, where it has some head that just yeah, machinates so, the weeds. Yeah, there's a little clip on, on the front page. I don't know if it's still there, but it's probably the most shared clip is where the head of the farm bot's got this really pointy, angry looking attachment, and it just completely demolishes a plant. It shoves it directly under the soil and just gets rid of it entirely. So the motor is powerful enough to like really penetrate the ground. Like, oh, the motors on those things. Well, I mean, it goes through a set of gears. It's belt driven, but the motors on those things, I used them for a previous project and I accidentally knocked a greenhouse over with it. So, or the arm of a greenhouse They're They're absolutely insane how much torque they have. That's lit. Okay. I'm sorry. That was a little bit of a digression. I live out on a farm. I don't do any farming, but I would love to do like the lightest weight possible version of farm. Like I just don't want to have to go outside very often. You know what I'm saying? It's so a farm bot seems like it might be a solution. <laughs> like I want to go outside and like smoke cigars and drink whiskey and like sit there reading old books. I don't want to go and outside watch and your farm bot in your retro future. Exactly. That's exactly what I want. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'll do is I'll live stream it using nerves. <laughs> Talk about how one might go about live streaming video with nerves. There's a camera on the, the farm bot as well. Also, shout out. I don't know that we said this, but farm bot's fully open source. So if you want to just like start hacking up features on it, go for it. Yeah, you've been working on some camera upgrades over at Binary Noggin, right, Connor? Yeah, I don't know how much I'm really allowed to talk about it, but I'll, I'll spoil a couple things. I've been working with Membrane a lot, which is another framework that I don't think gets nearly as much love as it, it should. It's very cool. 
they do multimedia processing. It's kind of a framework for doing that. It's been announced a couple times at a couple Elixir conferences, and I think it's super exciting. But anyway, so we have these networked cameras that we're using membrane to process them, all of the video data on it. That project isn't specifically using nerves, but I think it it would be a good fit for nerves if someone wanted to uh, do that. And, you know, since nerves is just Elixir, it would just work. So it's just almost plug and play. I mean, how would you how would you do the streaming part of it, though? Well, so, I mean, I guess it depends on how you're getting your video data. But in my particular case, they're network cameras, which use, I won't say all of them use, but there, there's a couple pretty standard formats that they use. H.264 media encoding is, it's basically a network protocol built just for streaming video data. It's what Twitch uses and probably what the stream we're on uses. And there's a membrane built all of the hard work for encoding and decoding those packets. So you just feed it video data and then do whatever you want with it, stream it over HTTP using like say MJPEG or something. The quality on that is not super amazing, but with a little bit more work, you know, you can do H.264 streaming via like RDP or RTSP is the other one. Mm. Greg and I did a training using the Raspberry Pi camera last year at ElixirConf. So if anybody's interested in the code that does that, it is on Greg's GitHub repo and it's called OmniEye. And so that will give you the uh, Elixir build plus all the code that you'd need to hook up the Raspberry Pi camera and stream. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi camera is a really good way to get started. It spits out raw JPEG frames, which are pretty heavy if you're going to be streaming them. I mean, I guess it depends on like the resolution. You won't get 30 frames a second from that camera streaming the raw JPEG frames. Uh, it's just not built to like JPEG as a file format isn't really made to do that. But you can do like MJPEG is something that all modern web browsers support. And it's basically just continuously does an HTTP get as fast as it can which you can get pretty good results out of that, like 15, 20 frames a second if you're local to the device. I think I just have become obsessed with agricultural technology uh, in the last like few minutes now. And because you have a note here about a company called Bowery using nerves. Yeah, yeah, we don't know a ton about Bowery. They pop in every once in a while and flex on us. They're like, hey, we use nerves to do this. And then we're like, that's really cool. And then they disappear again. Okay, so we're calling them. This is us calling out Bowery. Yeah, like, get them on the show. Yeah, I want to know more about Bowery. We want to know how you're using nerves. I'm looking at your site right now. You've yeah, got a location in cool. Nottingham, Maryland, which is not far from where I am, and New Jersey. Yeah, they're really cool. And, and I've chatted with them every once in a while when they pop in on like the nerves slack. Then they disappear again and into the void of the internet. And then I still check up on them and they seem to be doing good. As far as I know, they're still using nerves and I hope they continue to. Oh, maybe they will reach out. Maybe I will creep on them a while longer and try to find out who we can talk to over there. But we've got a question here about IoT and agriculture in the United States. And do you know any other uses either of nerves or, or just more broadly agricultural hardware tech in America? I think there's tons of it right now. I know a guy from our local scene did a bunch of contracting work for John Deere. Hmm for all their ag tech. And it seems like they have a huge, a huge department nerves? for that. No, they're not using nerves. Not as far as I know they, they aren't, but just in general, like I think there's, there's a lot of money in agriculture technology. It seems like a huge industry. I think agriculture tech is going to be the next huge boom of say IOT 
stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't usually like throwing around the term IoT very much because I find it kind of vague. But I think specifically in agriculture, that's going to be the next huge boom that we see in terms of internet connected things. My uh, father-in-law was interested in this. He's growing hops in his backyard. So he wanted to do some kind of like soil monitor and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, this is where it's like the next billion dollar industry or whatever. Right. I mean, like everyone either wants it or knows someone that wants it. And every yeah. one of those people know someone that have a lot of money to throw at that problem. And it just <laughs> seems like it's going to be the next big thing to me. The last five or so years I've been doing nerves in agriculture and it just, it seems like it's right on the cusp of becoming this huge thing that once we solve the, there's a lot of problems that need to be solved in terms of like identifying and even learning about plants. Like, and I think I'm not really that super into the AI side of tech, but I think that's what they're really working on is trying to make that the solved problem. So then all of us nerds can focus on the mechanical and software side of it. Hmm. Where do you live, Connor, or about? I live in California on the central coast in a little tiny town called Morro Bay. It's right off uh, PCH. Have you gotten to work with your hands on the FarmBot type stuff or, or is it? No, that's why I worked for FarmBot. So I wouldn't have to work with my hands. Okay. Or, or do you mean like building the bot itself? Yeah, well, building the bot itself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't like help design it or anything, but I've assembled a couple of them. It, it takes, I don't know, a couple of days, depending on your mechanical inclining. Got it. Got it. The website says it only takes an hour. The new one, the FarmBot Express, I've not put one together personally, but I've seen one put together. And the manufacturing partner in China, they made it really, really easy. They ship you like three major components and like a set of screwdrivers and you screw it into the ground. It doesn't even have to be level, the new one. The way they built the motor drivers, it will auto, I won't say auto level itself, but it, it's just very tolerant to unlevel ground, just the way that the motor and the tracking system works. So like you don't need any precision tools. You don't need any black magic hoodoo to do it. You just screw it into the ground and screw like a couple major components together and it's ready. It's very cool. Okay, you guys, we have got to wrap it up here. I want to give you the remaining time to ask the audience, make any requests of the audience, plug anything you want, shameless self-promotion. The time is yours. And Please. also give us one album to listen to. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to start with the album to listen to. So if you are like Connor and you like punk music and you're not sure about metal yet, listen to Iron Maiden's first album from 1980, self-titled. It's a very punk sounding, you would barely know that it's metal. So listen to that. Shameless self-promotions, find me online at Super Simple with no vowels. And I think that's it. For my album to listen to right after you finish Iron Maiden's first album, why don't you just listen to Metallica's first album because it's similar in vain and you'll just be in the mood to just really get stuff done for some reason you're just really gonna have a good time after that and shameless self-promotion i'm gonna shamelessly self-promote flutter even though it's not ready yet because i think that's going to be a really fun project for people it's still still being built me and frank are still we're only like a week or so into it but uh I think that's going to be a really fun project. And I posted a little spoiler alert tweet on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and it got a ton of, you know, people are very interested in it. So I think that's going to be a really interesting tool for people to use. Let me shout out the company I work for as well, SimpleBet, SimpleBet.io. So we're getting ready to launch now that sports are starting back up in the United States. And we're working on some very, very cool stuff. So if you are a compulsive gambler or you just enjoy sports betting, 
check it out. Yeah, and I guess I'll, I'll plug binary noggin while I'm here as well. Uh, we do software consulting, so if you need a nerves device made, uh, have yours truly help you work on it. Terrific. It's been really an honor and a pleasure to have you on, Todd Resedek, uh, friend of the show. Glad to have you on again, Todd, and we I'm sure that we'll see you on the show again soon. Connor Rigby, glad to have you back on, and we'll have to do another interview soon. Thank you very much. Cool, guys. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining us for the Elixir Wizards Dojo. Many thanks to our guests from the Nerves team, the organizers at ElixirCon for Japan, and all the community members who shared questions with us. Thank you again to our guests, Frank Hunleth, Justin Schneck, Todd Resedek, and Connor Rigby, and also to Eric, my wonderful co-host. Thank you, Eric, for dealing with me on the show for all of these months. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Smart logic is always looking to take on new projects, building web applications in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a project we could help you with, don't forget to uh, subscribe on Twitch if that's where you're listening. And if you're listening on the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe there as well. Share us on all your favorite platforms and join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more discussions on Elixir and the Elixir ecosystem. Kyono Erexa Wizardo Dojo O Okiki de Daki Arengato Kazaimashta Nasu Project no member Erexa Conf JP no Minasan Shitsmon Okutte Kurasata Kata Hontoni Arengato Kazaimashta Pondocast no Gasuto no Frank Hunlefu Justin Shineku ポードレーズデクとコーナーレグビーそしてポードカストのホストのエリックオストレッチとジャスタスイーペンもありがとうございましたエリクサウェザードはスマートラジックのポードカストですスマートラジックはエリクサレーズリアクトや Kubernetes などを使ってカスタムのウェブアプリケーションをお作りします。そしてリアクトネイティブでアプリもお作っている会社です。もしこのようなプロジェクトがあればぜひスマートラジックにご連絡してください。お待ちしております。エリクサーについてもっとお聞きになりたい方はエレクサーウェザードのポッドキャストをサブスクライブしてまた来週もお聞きください。エリクサーウェザードのポッドキャストをサブスクライブしてまた来週もお聞きください。